I'm thankful for the invitation. And, and uh, before we actually open the Word of God this morning, let me, all, let me just um, let you know that we really appreciate uh, this church. Uh, we consider you um, part of the inner circle, as it were. Um, you are a valued partner in our ministry at Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary. And I just want you to know that uh, on behalf of all of our our staff and our professors, we just greet you and thank you for your partnership, for standing with us. And it's a joy to have like-minded uh, fellowship, like-minded brethren, like-minded churches that really uh, is what we're all about. We're here to serve you and to uh, come alongside and assist the churches in training of men and women in the Bible College. And we have a Bachelor of um, Arts in Biblical Studies. That's a little bit newer if you may not know about that, but any of you who have any interest in completing a bachelor's degree or completing a second bachelor's degree, uh, there's a, that's the program that we have and I uh, would be happy to answer any questions you have. I know that uh, one time when I was traveling through here with my family about a year, year and a half ago, there was an interest uh, on part of one person. So just, you know, want you to know that that's available to you and there's a women's ministry focus for the ladies, there's biblical counseling and there's a pre-seminary track for the men. And of course, there's the, the standard Master of Divinity program that's pastoral training. And so just... Um, we're thankful for your partnership. Pray for us there as we seek to um, minister and raise up um, people, train people, equip saints. We live in a dark world, and uh, yet God has sovereignly placed us in this kind of larger, greater, central Northern California area, uh, Bay Area, and uh, what a joy it is to serve the King uh, at this time in history. Uh, all the more... Uh, uh, relevant and needed for Christ to be exalted and proclaimed. And so just thank you again for partnering with us. And if you have any questions about the ministry, um, I'd be happy to answer those uh, for you. What I want you to do for our time in the Word this morning is initially turn to Acts chapter 14. And as you're turning there, uh, I, wanna, I do want to go ahead and pray, and then we will we'll look at uh, this initial passage, and then we will spend uh, the bulk of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You have the notes on the back of the bulletin. Hopefully those can be of help to you as you follow along with me. And uh, let's just go to the Lord, though. You know, there's this, uh, we, we go to him because we need his help, Right? We need the Spirit's help. I need the Spirit's help. I'm just but a, um, one beggar showing other beggars where we can hopefully get some crumbs, right? And, and uh, may the Lord, though, seek to lay before us a feast and um, uh, instruct us and encourage us this morning. Let's go ahead and go to him, okay? Lord Jesus, we bow before you this morning, not by just pure ritual or routine, but because we acknowledge that you are the head of the church, you're our Lord, you're our Savior, our Master, and we come to you asking you to shepherd us. You are the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd who willingly laid down your life for the sheep, and you know how to build your church. You've promised to do it. And so we bring you your own word this morning, Lord, and we ask you to help us, to, as it were, minister to us, to shepherd us, to guide us, to instruct us, to open our eyes to the truth, to have your way with us, and to encourage our hearts, to again refresh us anew, in the very fact that you dwell with us, that you love us, 
And so, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes to the truth? Would you help me to communicate clearly? Would you help us to have attentive ears, to not be distracted by cares of this world or other things of this life or even activities yet later to happen today? But may we be gripped Holy Spirit, by your very presence, and may you take your word and powerfully impact us, even right now at this moment in worship. Lord, have your place among us as our lead, as our master, as the great lover of our soul. You've paid the price for us, and certainly in accomplishing the greatest thing of our salvation, you will yet continue to perfect the work that you began in us. So would you do that for us and in us this day? At this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 22, and we're gonna read this passage, and what I want you to note here is that just to set the context, is this is Paul coming to the end of his first missionary trip. And God has providentially ordained that in, in that trip, he has endured suffering, pain, and persecution as an example to the new believers that have come to faith in Christ as a result of his missionary endeavors. And he tells them something that probably isn't your first step of discipleship. It's probably not the normal thing that, that you would expect to hear as some of the first teaching that we would typically receive. And I want you to just follow along with me here. Read verses, we'll read verses 19 to 22. But some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned, as it were, back through Lystra and to Iconium and then on to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this is what he kept repeatedly saying to them. And this is the, the quote I'm reading from New American Standard. I'm not sure what all the different translations you would be using and what it would say, but here's what he says. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And I just want you to note that, that theme, that statement that he makes there. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that sphere of salvation where Christ rules the hearts of his people. Jesus himself has said, in the world, you will have what? Tribulation. You know, my problem with this particular passage, just as the Lord would bring it to bear on my own soul, is, is really only with one word. Uh, I, I get the through, I get the tribulations, and, and yes, I want to enter the kingdom of God. My problem is worth the word many. Um, <laughs> that's my problem. And we, we struggle with that, don't we? But the fact is this, folks, and I know that this is sort of like um, the professor who can state the obvious the fact is this, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and that is filled with trouble, with difficulty, with pain, with persecution, and all kinds of challenges. The path of salvation in a fallen world does not 
excuse us or give us an escape from all of the pain and difficulty that we will face. Christ, having Christ at the center of our lives doesn't provide an escape from trouble, pain, tragedy, or just plain old difficulty in all of its various forms. There's no, not so much talking about here the persecution of following Christ. It's just pain in general. Life is difficult. We're, we're not insulated from difficult. On a macro level, you could say this, if you just take it a bit of a survey of you know, our, our day in this age, right? There are political failures. There are massive amounts of injustices. There's economic challenges around the world and collapses. There's, there's crime, right? And then on a micro level, in our own individual lives, there's the mundane things of the untimely car breakdown, right? There's the, I mean, I don't know of a timely car breakdown. Um, there's unforeseen or inaccurate medical diagnoses. Doctors are human as well, are they not? There's unfulfilled desires. There's crushed dreams. There's... Um, betrayal from close friends. There's a spouse after years of service snaps and walks away from the faith. There's all kinds of issues. There's, there's conflict. There's a whole host of other painful, difficult realities in this sin-cursed world. And my purpose this morning is not to bury us in that. It's just to realize that what kind of a life do we want? What do we expect? In this life, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to do that through many tribulations. Not just a few, not just occasional, but almost as it were as a pattern of life. This is a reality of life. And it's to say this, tribulation is not just the out there thing, right? That, that is sort of, you know, unnamed, it's in our face. I mean, you, I, I, I'm, I'm not so naive to think that it's personal. And to one degree or another, like Paul, we walk through many tribulations over the course of our life. You may be facing that right now in your personal life. Or something's coming. Or maybe you're going on the other end of, of something and coming through something. There's lots of issues. There's the promising career with a secure retirement that gets wiped out in an instant in the Great Recession. There's kids that go astray. We're still hacking away at some of the same old sins that we've been trying to battle with for years. There are times where in my life where all of my emotional energy has been just completely sucked dry and I don't know which way to turn. What do we do? And yet in those multifaceted circumstances, that ought not to really catch us by surprise. In fact, God's restraining grace, if you think about it this way, it's really amazing and remarkable that we don't face more difficulty than we do in this sin-cursed world. It's God's amazing grace. We sang about it this morning. Paul told Timothy that all those who desire to live in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. We will be persecuted. And it's just as much of a promise as if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? 
Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. That's a glorious promise, isn't it? The other promise is equally as true. It's equally as true. And so what I want to do this morning is to look to the Lord for help in dealing with pain. We are not ones who subscribe to a lifestyle of craving the idol of ease and comfort and problem-free living. That's a, that's a complete opposite of what it means to be a believer according to Paul and according to Jesus' own words. So it's quite personal if you're in the midst of it right now. And if not, you're going to experience some degree of difficulty in this life. Only in heaven are there no tears of sorrow. So I guess uh, I'm here to say a little bit that difficulty is here to stay because we're in this fallen, sin-cursed world. And even if it's an unwelcome guest, and frankly, it's just part of our overall entrance exam, as it were, in identifying with Christ and being members of his kingdom, the question is how do we process pain, difficulty, challenge, the things that God ordains? And what does Christ want to accomplish in us and through us How do I handle the painful providences that even I'm currently experiencing? And this is where I want to direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. If you've been keeping the notes, my introductory comments is where we're at at this point. And it's just to say that pain and difficulty are a fact of life in this fallen world. Pain and difficulty are a fact of life in this fallen world. And so we want to look at this passage. And in this passage in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10, Paul gives us five components to the sufficiency of God's grace in Christ. And by laying this out to us, he's doing that so that no matter what the pain, no matter what the challenge, no matter what the difficulty on a personal, corporate, global, national level, that we can still live joyfully. And still live victoriously in Christ Jesus. No matter what the pain, the challenge, or the tribulation we may face. Sometimes those things are, we don't even get the reason why. They rest with God and known only to him. Sometimes God refuses to remove the thorn. Which is what we're going to see here today. He lets pain, as it were, linger with no possibility of it being taken away. So that now, after having gone through this, there is no going back to the pre-pain life. You're forever marked by these things. They remain with us. There's, there's, it's a new way of life. You're a different person and there's no going back to what it was like before If we can lay hold of the sufficiency of God's grace in Christ, then our hearts will be filled with hope for whatever unknown future God leads us through and be filled with hopeful, full of hope, encouragement to make sense out of even your current painful circumstances. So let's read this passage. This is really Paul's personal testimony in verses 7 through 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you're going to see that I've got these five components to the sufficiency of God's grace. Let's walk our way through this passage and observe these things. And the first thing that Paul does here, the first component of, of sufficient grace is to recognize our need for it. The need for sufficient grace in verses 7 through 8. God has a plan for your life. you believe that this morning? He has a plan for your life. And it's a good plan to give you hope and a future, to prosper you, not to harm you. But he's working that plan out in your life, as he is in Paul's life here. And God had a plan for Paul's life, didn't he? And as he walks through the providential path that God had ordained for him, it becomes readily apparent that what does he need more than anything else? Grace. Sufficient grace to carry out that plan. That plan that God has for each one of us is to make us daily dependent on the sufficient grace that he alone can provide. That's a daily walk. That's the walk of faith. That's what God calls us to. Now, I want to break this up into three different things. Let's first look at the divine plan, even in Paul's life. Notice verse 7. What did Paul experience? What glorious experiences this man had. More so than any other human being that had ever lived. He says here that because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me. What did he experience? He experienced these amazing revelations at a point of redemptive history. And yes, there were times where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with, with, uh, with John and, and James and Peter. And you have Elijah and you have Enoch. They're taking up people that die. But here's Paul, this side of redemptive history, and he gets abundant, glorious revelations that had not previously been given and to such a degree that he was not even allowed to communicate them. It's a secret, personal, glorious revelation of the living Christ himself that is not yet fully revealed. There's part of it that he had to sustain and contain within himself. Now there's a unique thing, right? What a gloriously privileged position that he was granted. And that was part of God's divine plan. But because of those revelations, God's very concerned about the plan then that he has for Paul, who's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles and take the gospel. And what is he concerned? Because of that, there would be a very unique temptation. And what would that temptation be? Notice the reposition of a phrase here. To keep me from exalting myself twice given. If you have that level of revelation, unique, that nobody else had experienced, you would be sorely, aggressively tempted to exalt yourself because nobody else had it. Do you see that? 
And that was God's plan for him. God had called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He didn't ask for this commission upon his life. He was appointed to it. And he's faithfully fulfilling God's assignment. And he experiences this uniquely amazing receipt of surpassing great revelations. Amazing self-disclosures from the glorified Christ himself, mind-blowing, dazzling, indescribable. Any Christian, if, you were, if I were to ask you, would you want this? Would you want to experience this? Would you like to have this kind of a special blessing? You would say, yeah, sign me up. I, I, I want to see the risen Christ in his glorious display in this kind of a way. And verse of chapter 12 it says that he was caught up to the third heaven verse 4 it says that there was a paradise that he experienced that he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak so this entering the path of eternal life and continuing to walk in, in this God is concerned about if him exalting himself Given that he had this unique and privileged calling he also then God gives an accompaniment to the blessing and what's the accompaniment? The accompaniment to fight away the temptation to exalt himself and to really apply what we see in other scriptures. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, James 4, 6. That statement is repeated twice. So he would face the, this, this temptation. And if he gave in to the temptation, what would it do to his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles? It would undermine it. It would completely negate it and destroy it. It would, it would obliterate it. So in the divine plan, just note that, that God has this for him. If he gave into it, it would lead actually to God having to oppose Paul because of his pride. And so to keep him from that, God does something and he has a gift for him. Now, I want to make two little, before I leave the divine plan, I want to note just two observations. God's plan is personal, folks. It's personal. Notice how many times the word I, me, and myself are repeated throughout this text. There was given to me to keep me from exalting myself. All of this is processed on a personal level, not primarily for the people out there. He's walking with God on an individual personal level. And so what we're talking about here is the fact that God has uniquely gifted you, just like he gave gifted Paul. He's got a personal plan for your life. It's customized, it's specific, and is not messed up. And whatever he's doing, he's doing it with an intention. And I'll talk about that in a moment. God, and, and here I, I love the fact that this is preventative. God sees the temptation that Paul will face and he takes preventative action on Paul's behalf. Paul's not under divine chastisement in the giving of this thorn in the flesh. Do you see that? God's taking a preventative action. And sometimes God does that with us, doesn't he? We just don't see it that way, oftentimes. So who knows what God has spared us from by sending us through certain circumstances and prevented us from going down certain paths. It's a personal plan. God knows what he needs to do in your life. Do you believe that this morning? He knows what he needs to do. He knows what he needs to prevent. He knows what he needs to restrain. He knows what he needs to discipline. He knows when he needs to abandon you to yourself. He's wise and gentle and he's good and he's purposeful. He's trying to accomplish one thing in your life and in my life and it's conformity to Christ. 
And that plan is very personal. It's uniquely tailored and customized for you. It was in Paul's life. Not only is it personal, though, the divine plan is purposeful. He's going to accomplish his goal. Would you agree with that? Right? (laughs) I mean, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Right? He will be faithful to complete it. So the problem isn't the fact that God's unfaithful to complete it. The problem is we don't like the process sometimes. Right? We don't care for the particular, but we would do it a little bit differently. So he has a goal here, that God has a goal in Paul's life. And specifically, the goal is to humble Paul. That's our, God's goal with us too. To humble us. To make us dependent upon him. To help us see our great need for sufficient grace. I'm still just under this main overall first consideration. That our need is great. Satan's purpose was to torment Paul. But God's purpose, which is ultimate, as if the devil is God's little devil, stringing him along to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in Paul's life, and that is that he is going to show forth his power, and he's going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul's life, showing him his sufficiency and our own inadequacy, to grasp the sufficiency of Christ alone, that we have to then experience our own insufficiency. So God has to undo our own sense of self-importance. So the divine plan underscores our need for sufficient grace. Now the second Subpoint under the need for sufficient grace is I want you to notice the satanic attack. So there was given to Paul something very specific for the purpose. What was it? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, is how the NAS puts it. The passage says here that there was given to me, Paul's perspective is that God gave him something. Are you kidding me? I mean, just think about this. Your next birthday party, the person... A person, maybe your spouse, maybe your parent, person who loves you the most in this world, shows up and gives you a gift like this. <laughs> gives you a messenger of Satan. That his perspective here is amazing. That's no gift. I want to exchange that thing. I don't want that gift. That's not a, that's not a gift. A gift to torment me? Are you kidding? Can I exchange this? Can, how can he have this perspective? Paul is writing this letter and he's come to the point in his life where he receives this personal pain directly sent by God that's not going to go away ever for the rest of his life as a gift from God. He says, yes, my beloved Corinthians, this pain, this challenge, this extreme difficulty is sent to me personally from the Father up above who's looking down in love. Isn't that an amazing perspective? I mean, shame on me for not having that perspective. Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Though he slay me, Job says, I will what? Hope in him. How did he get there? How did he get to have this perspective on the satanic attack? Though the pain was intensely unbearable, the sufficient grace now becomes not just a doctrinal assertion that Christ is sufficient. He's got to live it, right? He has to live it, a daily experience, which would give him this personal testimony. God met Paul's deep need and Paul discovered the sufficiency of Christ's grace in the midst of 
the specific plan that God had for him. That's what it should be in our lives as well. Listen to Spurgeon. He says it this way, quote, if you have prospered your whole life and if your spirits have never been cast down, you do not know much about the strength of God. You may have read it in books. You may have seen it in others. And observation is useful. But a grain of experience is worth a pound of observation. And you can only get that knowledge of the power of God by an experimental acquaintance with your own weaknesses. And you will not be likely to get that except that you are led along the thorny, flinty way. When our Lord has accomplished what he is aiming at, the result will be to empty us out and make us discover the utter vanity of self, end quote. It's exactly right. He's, he's nailing it here. For us, the satanic attack is ultimately to drive us to the experience that Christ's grace alone is sufficient. Alone. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, and perhaps some of you were waiting for me to get to this. What is this? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. What was it? We don't really know exactly. Some people would say that, that maybe it, it might have been something physical. We don't know. Thorn here, when it says thorn, it's not a rose bush thorn, okay? If you have roses. We're not talking about a little thorn like that. We're talking about a stake or a spike. If you want a picture to it, like a frozen icicle. We're talking about that kind of a, a situation here. Very... Um, painful. More likely though, I don't believe this is something physical. I believe it's something spiritual here. Flesh here is in the moral, has idea of, of the moral realm of unredeemed humanness, of spiritual warfare, as opposed to a, a corporal physical flesh or physical body. And when it says here, a thorn of, a messenger, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, messenger is commonly used to describe angels. The majority of the New Testament times and all of Paul's writings, it always refers to angels, both real godly angels or fallen angels and demons. So it's always a, a being as opposed to something else. And it says to torment me always means the idea of harsh treatment, something that harasses and afflicts in 1 Corinthians 4.11, that same word for torment is translated roughly treated. And in the Old Testament, enemies were referred to as thorns. So they were personal beings. It wasn't something only physical. When Paul prays in verse 8, he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. It seems to indicate that it's a being that can depart as opposed to a physical ailment. So there might have been a physical component to this thorn in the flesh uh, and maybe a, a physical manifestation, but the bottom line is that this is spiritual warfare under God's control, but that was used by God to help Paul see his need, keep him humble, and ultimately experience the sufficiency of God's sustaining grace to overcome it. Now notice, thirdly, for the need for sufficient grace is underscored not just by the divine plan, not just by the satanic attack, but also by the believer's prayer. What does Paul do? He prays, verse 8, concerning this, this thorn in the flesh that was given me, 
to keep me from exalting myself, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. He implored Christ. He poured his heart out to Christ. Folks, we have to do that. That takes time. That takes time getting in your prayer closet. That takes time getting alone with God and pouring your heart out to God. Whatever the situation, whatever the pain or the difficulty is, he turned to Jesus and he prayed for deliverance. He did the right thing. He went to the only one who could do something about this pain. There's a unique thing that only Christ can do that no other human being can do. And he poured his life out to the Lord and he implored the Lord. And I love the fact that Paul is not rebuked for asking for deliverance. We're encouraged to do this. Praise God. It doesn't mean that God's going to grant his request, but nothing wrong with appealing to the one and only who can really do something about your problem, whatever it is, or whatever the difficulty is, whatever the pain is. We can pour out our heart out. Paul wasn't capable of removing this particular pain. Isn't it that way with a lot of pain in our lives? I've done everything I can do, but I can't, I can't rid myself of the difficulty. I can't absolve myself. I can't escape this pain, this life that I'm in, this situation. Well, what can we do? We can beg the Lord. We can implore the Lord. His prayer is marked by intensity and persistence, right? He does it three times, just like Jesus in the garden. Three times he prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And God's plan was working and that he brought Paul to a place where he realized, I cannot fight this thing in my own strength. I can't do it or my own resources. He had been what? Humbled because he's praying and he realizes this. So friends, we plan our lives to please God. God is gonna put us in situations of hardship as the necessary school whereby we learn that Christ's grace alone is sufficient. That's the school you signed up for if you are a believer in Christ this morning. And we come to realize our own inadequacy and our own inability and insufficiency and we see the heinousness of the sin of self-sufficiency. Our culture is marked by you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. You can't. You can't be whatever you want to be or do whatever you want to do. Now, I'm granted there's a lot of freedom and I understand the, the, the general thought of that statement, but we better, dare not press that too far and not have a working theology in our daily living. We pray, we commune with Christ, who's our joy, our sufficiency, and indeed our identity lies wholly outside of ourselves and wholly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our very identity. That's the need for sufficient grace. There's a divine plan, there's a satanic attack, and then there's a prayer. Now I want you to draw your attention to the promise. Secondly, the promise of sufficient grace. How does God respond to Paul's prayer? What's the promise in verse nine, the first half? He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for divine power is perfected in human weakness. And I added divine and human for my power is perfected in weakness. Here's Basically, if I could kind of um, play this out a little bit, here's, here's how Christ answer, answers Paul's prayer. He basically says something like this. My beloved Paul, I've heard you, and I understand the pain you're enduring. I endured more on the cross. I'm not going to take this gift away from you. 
I've got a better plan. A wiser plan that's also for your best spiritual health. My answer will draw you nearer to me for sweeter and more intimate fellowship. You will come to learn this and appreciate it more and more over the course of your life. And although I do not afflict you willingly, what's more important here than you having a pain-free, easy life is for me to keep you humble and through your weakness display my power. Instead of delivering you from this, I'm going to sustain you within it. And as I work to accomplish this glorious display of my majesty and power, you too will then experience greater joy of realizing that my grace alone is abundantly sufficient to meet your every need. No, delivering you would only short circuit the greater display of my grace and power in and through you. Now, beloved, isn't that really what the Lord is saying to us? That's what the Lord is saying to us. This is a wonderful promise from God. Most definitely a promise to cling to amidst your life's challenges and difficulty and pain. Grace is what? It's undeserved favor. The word used 155 times in the New Testament. And we start to experience at the moment of salvation and it gets sweeter and more overwhelming and more powerful the longer we live. The longer I live, the more I'm amazed that God's grace continues to persevere with me and preserve in me a tender-hearted affection for the Lord Jesus. That's our testimony. That's our testimony. Flowing out of saving grace is this sustaining enablement. That's the primary meaning here. In other words, if my sins are forgiven, which is grace, then what can mere man do to me? Answer, nothing. And part of the armor of God is the helmet of salvation, which protects our minds. We continue to think on this. We continue to think about this. And that's what God calls us to, is to remember this promise. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Just back a couple, a couple chapters. Listen to this. I mean, it's like he can't think of enough big adjectives. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything. I mean, do you see these adjectives? This is amazing. You may have an abundance for every good deed. The emphatic focus in the passage that we're looking at is on the idea of sufficiency, that God's grace is sufficient. It's more than enough. It's an ample amount. It's abundantly supplied to you, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. I'll borrow from Spurgeon again and I'll try to make it more American instead of British. He says it this way. He says, to underscore the idea of sufficiency, and this will greatly encourage you, listen. If, it's as if some tiny fish, being very thirsty, was troubled with the fear of drinking the ocean dry. And the Father Pacific Ocean said to him, poor little fish, my ocean is sufficient for you. Can you imagine one fish in the ocean? I mean, that's the perspective here. He says, put, put one mouse down in the granaries of Egypt when they were fullest after the seven years of plenty. And imagine that one mouse worrying and complaining that it might die of famine. And cheer up, says Pharaoh, poor mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. Trying to picture this. Or imagine a man standing on a mountain. I had a couple years ago, I hiked to the half, top of Half Dome. What an experience. And I can identify with this illustration. 
You're on the top of this mountain. And the man says, I breathe so many cubic feet of air in a year, I'm afraid that I shall ultimately inhale all the oxygen which surrounds the globe. (laughs) To which the earth might reply, my atmosphere is sufficient for you. Right? So doesn't this just make unbelief look so silly? I mean, when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, to Paul, and when he says that to us, we don't grasp the meaning of sufficiency. We greatly undervalue it. And here Spurgeon has pictured it for us. So look, what I want to say to you this morning is, no matter what your need, no matter what your pain, no matter what your difficulty, what God is saying to us is, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for power, is perfected in weakness. I don't care if you have an allergy attack that just drains you, if you have challenges at work that demoralize and stress you out, if you have a relationship that breaks you, if you have a close comrade that betrays you, if there's, I mean, I'm just naming things that have happened in my life. And I've found this to be true that God's grace is sufficient for me. And that's what God is saying here to Paul. I love the way that the hymn writer and how firm a foundation put it on power being perfected in weakness. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Quote in this verse. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So there's the promise, beloved, of sufficient grace. These next ones will come a little more quickly. What are the attitudes? What are the attitudes we see? There's two attitudes basically here. Joy and confidence. Joy and confidence. The attitudes of sufficient grace are joy and confidence. I don't see Paul here a reluctant, somber kind of grit and bear it type of submission. uh, As if he's just like passively resigning himself to bear up under trouble. uh, Like the, like when I was a kid and my two older brothers would, you know, grab me and twist my arm by my act until I said uncle, you know, Uh, not like that. His attitude is, is a joyful attitude. In other words, it's like this. Is he's basically saying, if my affliction and my difficulty shows Christ's power and brings him greater glory than delivering me, and since I want to be consumed by Jesus anyway and not my own comfort, ease, and pleasure, then I'm most glad I rejoice. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather, what? Boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Do you see his joyful attitude there in verse 9? As the answer, his response to the answer to, that, to his prayer. And notice his, coast, his confidence. What does he say? He says, I will boast about my weaknesses. He's confident that Christ himself will display his power through Paul's weaknesses and therefore be glorified. What do you and I typically try to do about every weakness we have? Shore it up, right? Shore it up. It's almost like he's getting up in front of everybody and he's going to list all of his weaknesses. I mean, that's, that's not the typical approach, right? But he's very confident. He's going to boast about his weaknesses, not boast of his sin, He's just getting in his limitations, in his frailties, in his humanity. 
in the fact that he can't do anything about certain pain in his life. He's confident that Christ will display himself. And I want to encourage us this morning, we can be joyful for these reasons and we can be confident that Christ is at work. A confidence that God is doing something glorious even if you can't discern it right now. Doing something glorious in your life. A display that he uniquely can produce. Now notice with me fourthly, what's the source of sufficient grace? The source is from that one phrase at the end of verse nine, when he says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness. There's his confidence. What's the source of sufficient grace? It's none other than, the, than Christ Jesus himself, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What's he talking about here? When he says the power of Christ, what's he referring to? He's referring to the resurrection power of Christ. And he's right back to the cross, right back to the gospel, right back to Jesus' completed work as the basis for all hope and the basis for any progress. We dare not underestimate the power of Christ, not just to save a sinner, but to transform that sinner. You know, there's a little saying, right? Time heals all wounds. You ever heard that before? Heard that saying before? It's a lie. Okay? It's a lie. Time does not heal all wounds. Time clinging to a sufficient Savior heals all wounds. But just time itself, not processing things correctly, does not do that. I understand that People will say that, but what we really need to phrase that and grip that is to realize that clinging to a sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, does heal all wounds. When we process them the right way, God's grace in Christ saves us and transforms us. And we all have this, this sanctification that we make progress as a testimony to the power of Christ in us. And for Paul, this is what he's testifying here. That he's going to boast about his weaknesses because the power of Christ is being manifest in his life. When he says that Christ's power may dwell in him, it's that idea of a permanent, settled presence. That Christ's power is at home and it's not leaving. It, it, it literally means to pitch a tent or to set up a tabernacle. There's an allusion here to the Shekinah glory of God. Remember, as the children of Israel were led through the, the uh, wilderness, the settled presence of God's glory indwelling that tabernacle, leading the children of Israel around in the desert. That's an allusion here in this passage in terms of his power. One man has said it this way. I like the way he phrased it. It is when believers are out of answers, confidence and strength with nowhere else to turn to but God, that they are in a position to then be most effective. No one in the kingdom of God is too weak to experience God's power, but many are too confident in their own strength. Friends, we can't do it in our own strength. Physical suffering, mental anguish, disappointment, unfulfillment, and failure squeeze the impurities out of believers' lives, making them pure channels through which God's power can now flow. So you see, it's through these types of divine authorized and sent tribulations that our faith then is proved genuine and we experience Christ's power in our lives, which then provides a great assurance to us that we're really one of his. 
And we have an assurance of salvation. And it could be for some of us today that the issue is, is that if you're not experiencing this, if you don't desire this, if your responses aren't like this, if you can't say that Christ is sufficient, if you can't say that his grace is sufficient, it could very well be that you don't really know him. Could very well be that you don't really know him. And my encouragement today would be is, do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as the alone sole source for your salvation, for the redemption of your life, for the forgiveness of your sins? See, Jesus Christ, when we come to him, we come to him in the fullness and the totality of who he is. We don't grasp it all. We learn more and more. But here, what Paul is basically testifying here is that the power of Christ may dwell in me. When does that power come into his life? When? At the moment of salvation and every time after. Does it mean he has a perfect growing pattern? No, not at all. But he is alluding to here that who does he turn to? In the midst of pain, who does he turn to with this difficulty, with this pain? He turns to the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus has laid hold on him and saved him and appointed him and has a divine plan for his life. Through these types of tribulations that our faith has proved genuine, beloved, and we experience Christ's power in our life, which then provides that assurance and that Christ Jesus would be exalted now even in our lowly bodies. It's amazing that a saved sinner could be such a glorious display for Christ's grace. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's out to do, a true testimony. So we've looked at the need for God's grace in Christ, and it's driven by the fact that there's a divine plan, there's a satanic attack, and then we pray. God's promise of sufficient grace in Christ is assured to us, and it's forever received and applied with attitudes of joy and confidence that his resurrection power is at work in and through us. Now, you might say that's enough, right? That's enough. That's, that's the theology of the sufficiency of God's grace, but that's not where Paul ends. The fifth point in our consideration here is I want you to look at verse 10 and the disposition, what I call the disposition of sufficient grace. Remember, this is Paul's personal testimony. He says in verse 10, in light of all this, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, when I study this passage, I'm pretty good up until verse 10. Because at verse 10, uh, I, it's kind of, it's like, why, why do you have to say that, Paul? Because I could affirm the theology, but now you're forcing me to live it. Right? <laughs> Now you're forcing me to apply it because I see how you're applying it. I'm not able to escape the truth without then applying it. Well content with those various things. I mean, that's the idea of I'm pleased with it. I'm thrilled with it. I, I, I can smile towards the future with weaknesses, with, with insults when people say things about me, with distresses that cause me great concern, with, with persecutions that... that uh, are coming at me with just all kinds of difficulty. They're all vehicles through which Christ's power is displayed. That's why I'm thrilled to have such wonderful opportunities to exalt him. That's what his testimony is. And note the qualifier, it's for Christ's sake. It's not self-inflicted. 
asceticism or those kinds of things. It's not as an evildoer. It's not, he's, reap, he's not reaping what he's sown because of bad decisions. It's not difficulty because of he's always been looking out for himself. No, it's, it's not insults because of his own rudeness or distresses because of his own laziness or some sort of persecution because he's an obnoxious ambassador. None of that. It's not because he's disqualified himself. These are just difficulties like Paul's thorn that come to him. He's not looking for a fight. But in the faithful fulfillment of God's plan for his life, it comes. And his boast is in his weaknesses, and it's revealed through the things that are coming to him as a result of others sinning against him, as a result of spiritual warfare, as a result of living in a fallen world that opposes his precious Lord and Savior. And so it is with us. So it is with us. His weaknesses and even extreme demonic tormenting did not call into question his calling. Mark that. No matter what the pain and difficulty it is, afterwards, what does he go on to do? Continue to fulfill his calling. He writes the book of Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are all books that he wrote after this permanent gift from God of a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. So that pain and difficulty didn't disqualify, it didn't kill him, it didn't knock him off his horse. He kept going, and instead of those being a hindrance, they actually served to enhance his ministry and his effectiveness. So weaknesses, insults, that's how he could say, I'm well content for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We live in opposite world, folks. We're different than this world. When we're weak, then we're what? We're strong because of Christ. Christ is stronger than the strongest opponent. In Paul's life, a personal demonic messenger from Satan daily in his life, never to be removed. We haven't had that experience. But here, in all these things, we're assured in Romans 8, 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him, Christ, who loved us. So don't let anybody knock you off your horse. Don't let any difficulty or pain do anything else to you other than what you see modeled by Paul here. God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient. Know your need. Heed the promise. Note the attitudes. Always keep in mind the source being Christ himself. And then the disposition, the way we live we live for Christ's sake because he's going to display his strength and our weakness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our day today. Thank you for your grace and mercy, which is abundant to us. Forgive us for our great overconfidence and our pockets of self-sufficiency. And instead, Lord Jesus, may we experience the sweet communion of pouring ourselves out to you, of drawing near to you, that we would be able to give a similar testimony as Paul has given here to these Corinthian Christians. And I believe that's why he gave it, so that those Christians could be encouraged and us as well, that you, Lord Jesus, can accomplish these same things in us. Thank you that you're sufficient for all of our pain and difficulty. Be glorified in us, we pray, for your sake. Amen.